Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. The National Day of Prayer was observed the first Thursday of May, and I had a chance to talk with the president of the National Day of Prayer Task Force, Ronnie Floyd. You'll hear some of his perspective on the importance of this year's theme of unity. Then some comments about the love of Jesus expressed throughout the pages of the scriptures from author and Bible teacher Elise Fitzpatrick. And the Christian satire site The Babylon Bee has released its first book. Learn more from the head writer, Kyle Mann. And on this edition of The Intersection, more reflections on the National Day of Prayer and its significance from Vice President Dion Elmore. Then some insight into translations of the Bible from Mark Ward of Logos Bible Software, including comments relative to the continued relevance of the King James Bible. Finally, it's Susie Jennings of Operation Care International, who has been serving the poor with the love of Jesus. She's in the process of organizing a massive birthday party for Jesus during the 2020 Christmas season. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Ronnie Floyd is senior pastor of Cross Church, located in northwest Arkansas, and a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He also serves as president of the National Day of Prayer Task Force. This year's National Day of Prayer is now history, but the theme of unity is highly relevant every single day. Here now is Ronnie Floyd. A divided church cannot call a divided nation to unity. And I really believe that we have an opportunity to become a leading voice for unity, but we as the church must really understand what that is. In uh, thousands and thousands of churches in America, uh, we need to come together, and then we all need to come together as the body of Christ uh, around the Word of God, the Bible. We need to come together around Jesus being our Savior and our Lord. And uh, just the need for the gospel around the world, especially here in America, and then, of course, to the ends of the earth, where the gospel has never been before. And so I really believe that that if we can just figure out a way to come together in that, I really believe God can use us in a powerful, powerful way. And, you know, one of the things that's been a real concern to me is that there's no one out here calling for unity. It's just really rare to hear this. And in October, when the Lord really began to confirm to me that this needed to be our theme for 2018, and then when we, when we revealed it um, in early November uh, to a group of 300 leaders of the National Day of Prayer, we began to chart our, our future toward this uh, for this coming uh, May the 3rd, which is the National Day of Prayer. So, you know, we, we really have tried to advance. We've tried to forward. Our thematic verse is making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. And this country is more polarized. It's more divided than I've ever seen it ever in my lifetime. And, you know, we're going to have to understand that a house divided cannot stand, Jesus said. And we're not any different than that. And we need to come together. We need to find ways to work together. That doesn't mean we all believe the same thing. Uh, but it does mean that there are certain things that pull us together. And we need that. And quite honestly, you know, when you really get down to it, biblically speaking, uh, there is no unity apart from God. And God is the only one who can accomplish it. And so, therefore, that's exactly why we're calling on the nation to pray. 
And uh, this this theme is really caught on out there because people know the relevance of this theme in today's world. As you point out, government is not what brings us together. Politics can be a really divisive force. That's not to say Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, but Mm -hmm. there is an element of praying for our leaders. So address that if you would. Well, I think, first of all, we need to pray that God would would give them wisdom to lead us toward a peaceful America. Uh, I think that's very important. Uh, one of the goals of uh, the leaders of this country, according to the scripture, is to protect its people. And so they've got to come together on certain issues relating to protecting our people and preserving liberty and also standing for the dignity of human life. There's all kind of ways we can pray for our leaders. I think it's very important that we pray that God raises up leaders with a godly heart, with a commitment to the Bible, with a strong commitment to human life from the womb all the way to death. And America's struggle today is not simply at the womb or at the point of death, but it's in between where we have failed to recognize that every human being has been created in the image of God. And there should never be any moment or any time where we ever, 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 because of the color of one's skin, should ever question certain matters, relationship to their human dignity. That has nothing to do with it. We as born-again believers, those of us that are, we believe deeply that every person is created in the image of God. America needs to rediscover this. And it's very important that we rediscover it, Bob. And so I think when we pray for our, our leaders, we pray for wisdom. We pray that they'll see life from God's perspective. We pray also that, that they would just have a spirit and an attitude. Let's get this done. I mean, it's really important. Right now, we, we, we are having way too many walls being built. Some of these walls have to come down between people and relationships. And that's just, that just is not right. And we've got to just do what we can to bring people together. And we need leaders in our country. We need leaders at the state level, leaders at the local level, leaders at the national level who are willing to call people to work together. And how in the world can we ever be all that we're supposed to be as a nation without being able to work together. And now's the time, a great time to call for people to do that. Ronnie Floyd here on The Intersection. Learn more about the National Day of Prayer by going to the website nationaldayofprayer.org. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's author and speaker Elise Fitzpatrick. She talked with me about developing a deeper love for Christ based on subject matter that she covers in the book, Finding the Love of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. Here now is Elise Fitzpatrick. You know, I think all Christians have been told numbers of times they should read the Bible, and we should read our Bible. I'm certainly not militating against that. My concern, though, is that when we approach the Bible, it's sort of, I think, sometimes like having to do your algebra homework. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, you need to do it, said the woman who really never passed math, and I don't know how I graduated. Um, so uh, we approach it kind of like some homework assignment or eating our vegetables before we get our dessert or something like that. And what I would like to do is change up, help people change up the way that they're reading the Bible And, you know, some of the ways that I think we read it and it becomes just a discipline or uh, becomes disappointing is if we read it, uh, first of all, because we think that if we do that, somehow our day will be better. So in other words, 
if I, you know, I, I talked to a woman one time and I asked her how her day was and she said, yeah, well, it, you know, I had a bad day, started out, I had a flat tire on the way to work because I didn't read my Bible in the morning. And if mm. what we're doing is reading Scripture as though it were some sort of magic talisman to make our day go well, then when we read and our day doesn't go well, which, let's face it, frequently our days don't go well, at least not the ways we plan for them to go, then it's going to become frustrating and disappointing to read it. And again, we'll have to start reading it as though it were our algebra homework. Or we read it because we're trying to figure out, okay, so what's the moral of the story? What's the, mm. you know, what's the, what's the Aesop fable here? So I'm, especially if I read the Old Testament, you know, what is, what is it that I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to read this Bible and then find out what would the heroes do? And if we read the Bible like that, then it's going to become all law to us and not good news. And so it will become frustrating. Or we read the Old Testament, and, you know, if you're going to read the Old Testament, you have to begin to wonder what's going on with all of these rituals and, you know, blood sacrifices and these strange prophecies, and how does any of that have anything to do with my life today, or even with Christianity? And my point, Bob, is that at, on the day of the resurrection, on the first Easter Sunday, Jesus held a Sunday school class uh, with two people, I think one of them was a woman, but with two people on the road to Emmaus and then afterward with his disciples in Jerusalem. And what he said on that day, I think, needs to change the way we read the Bible and did change the way the disciples read the Bible. So basically what he said was, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then as they listened to him teach them how to read the Bible, they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And I, I'm really praying that men and women who read this book will find their hearts being opened to a new way of reading scripture, not being so much about themselves, you know, we all know, and we've all heard, well, the Bible isn't really about you. Okay, I get that. The Bible's about God. And while that's true, the Bible is about God. The Bible isn't just generically about God. The Bible, the entire Bible, even the Old Testament, is about Jesus. That's what he said, that it was about him. And so what we want to do, what I want to do, is try to give men and women a way to read Scripture so that they're seeing what Jesus was talking about. Jesus said that Moses wrote about him. Jesus said that the Psalms that David wrote were about him. Jesus said that the prophets, what they said, were about him. And so what I want to do is try to help people see how Jesus is there everywhere. And what Jesus is doing everywhere is he's preaching the gospel. And what he's saying is, of course, first of all, we're more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. But also, secondly, we're more loved and welcome than we ever dared hope. Elise Fitzpatrick here on The Intersection. Find out more through her website. It's Elise, E-L-Y-S-E, Fitzpatrick.com. 
Well, next on this edition of The Intersection, it's head writer for the Christian satire site, The Babylon Bee, Kyle Mann, who discussed with me the concept of the website and its first book, How to Be a Perfect Christian, Your Comprehensive Guide to Flawless Spiritual Living. From that conversation, this is Kyle Mann. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, Adam Ford is the name of the guy who launched the site and, and, and kicked it off. And he, uh, he kind of noticed that there was a, a void in the Christian uh, subculture, that there really wasn't anybody doing the kind of up-to-the-minute satire that we wanted to do with the Babylon Bee. Um, so there's a lot of satire sites out there, some that go after a particular subculture, and then there's like The Onion, which does a mm. lot of the political satire and current event satire. But there really wasn't anything that was speaking to Christians from a Christian worldview, and so that was kind of the uh, the, the little subculture that we wanted to address with the Babylon Bee. And it seems to me it would be a very difficult subculture, if you will, to navigate because they're they're obviously you are doing stories that well might provoke people, might offend people. Where do you where do you define the boundaries as far as where the Babylon Bee will and will not go, or is that something that's uh, if I can use the word still evolving? <laughs> it's definitely on an article by article basis. Yeah, you know, I, I think when we first started, there were there were some areas we kind of we kind of cordoned off and said, okay, well, we're not going to make fun of that. And you know, we try not to make fun of God directly. Like, we're not going to make God look silly in an article, uh, and we're not going to make fun of the Word of God and make the Word of God look silly or make fun of uh, make, try to suggest maybe that the Bible is uh, somehow insufficient or or. Or, or goofy in some way, you know. Obviously, the Bible has some uh, some aspects that we in, in Western culture might think are, are silly reading today. Uh, but really, what we try to poke at when we go after things like that is is the American perception and misunderstanding of uh, what we believe to be the Word of God and, and God's eternal truths in, in the Scriptures and and, and in, in His self. So um, those are kind of the areas that we, we, we do we do understand we're kind of treading on holy ground if we approach mocking God. So those are the things that we, that we kind of push away from. But other than that, I mean, really, satire is a great vehicle to call attention to things that even sensitive topics that yeah. people are having difficulty talking about or expressing their thoughts or feelings on. Satire is a, a good lightning rod for that kind of discussion, we think. And I know the Babylon Bee has really meant so much to so many people. I know for me personally, my testimony, Kyle, is that, you know, I the Babylon Bee helped me find my life verse. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. well, we, so yeah. now you can help me to be a perfect Christian. I, I am very enthusiastic about this <laughs> book. So, well, so I'm, I'm glad to hear, you know, we're really excited about it. Uh, it's, it's a book that, uh, will help you on your, on your path to Christian perfection, perfection. All you got to do is, uh, is accept without question everything that American Christianity and the evangelical subculture tells you, and you will be a perfect Christian in no time. In 10 chapters or less, we guarantee it. Oh, that, that's great. So, so why do a, a book of this sort rather than say a best of collection? Yeah, you know, we, we started kicking around ideas like, what should we do? Should we do a compilation, a collection? And that's not the direction we wanted to go. We we felt like we wanted to use some more long-form satire uh, that that makes its point over the course of, a, of several chapters versus uh, kind of a, a, a disjointed collection of article ideas. I know a lot of bloggers that have 
gotten popular have kind of done a best of collection or, you know, they'll just republish and do a little bit of extra content. But we want to do something that's all new. We're constantly wanting to push the boundaries of what we're doing. And that's something that, um, that, that we can do through long form satire. One of my favorite books is uh, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. And uh, he, he's able to accomplish in just a couple hundred pages uh, some of the most effective commentary on living the Christian life and, and, and the kind of temptations that we face and the silly tendencies and, and flaws and follies of modern man. And it's still super powerful today, you know, and it's, it's I don't know, 60 years later or whatever. Uh, and that's kind of the thing that we wanted to do. We wanted to write something that would be powerful, that would both be timely and timeless, and uh, and hopefully would make people think about some of the silly things we do in, in Christian culture. And also, you know, we want people to laugh at, <laughs> to be able to laugh at themselves so they can discover a, a more authentic uh, connection to God and the gospel. Kyle Mann here on The Intersection. The web address is thebabylonbee.com. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. Also, through that homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. You can also access The Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app, you can learn more through faithradio.org. Also at the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Dion Elmore is Vice President of Marketing and Public Relations for the National Day of Prayer Task Force. In a recent conversation, he talked about the history, background, and significance of the commemoration. From that conversation, this is Dion Elmore. The National Day of Prayer actually goes all the way back to 1775 when the First Continental Congress called for a National Day of Prayer and Fasting, and presidents from then on. Uh, throughout the decades called for National Days of Prayer because we were, of course, a nation founded upon God's Word. We were one nation under God, and that was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Scriptures, the Bible, as, as we call it, and followers of Christ who established this nation upon the principles and the laws of God's Word. And so, Back from the beginning, that was recognized by the leadership, and throughout the decades, they've called for National Days of Prayer. When things have been in turmoil, when things have been good, when, you know, in all types of different, uh, uh, different occasions. But in 1952, and there's a story that goes with this, and the story is that in, in February of 1952, Billy Graham stood on the steps of the Capitol on outside and, and, and was preaching and and uh, talking to people about the influx of humanism in our nation, and that if we did not establish God in prayer once again in our nation and make it firm, that we would fall by the wayside of humanism, which was coming in at that time through communism. So that was February. Shortly after that, legislation was put together, and by a joint act of Congress, um, absolutely unanimous, there was passed uh, a, basically a bill, and, and that bill was signed into law 
by President Harry Truman to establish a national day of prayer in our public law, lest we forget God and prayer in our nation. But again, that was 1952. Things have changed a lot in our culture Mm. since then. But in 1983, the National Prayer Committee uh, wanted to establish a regular day. Now, that day was established as a day, an appropriate day each year, other than Sunday as a national day of prayer. The the leaders were wise. They didn't want to turn it into a, a church event, a Sunday event. This was a national day of prayer. But in 1983, the National Prayer Committee put together a task force, National Day of Prayer Task Force, headed up by Vonette Bright, who was, who was the wife of uh, Campus Crusades, Bill Bright. And she was a champion of prayer. And she said, we need to get this on a specific day so that we can rally people like never before to pray for our nation. Because in 1983, they believed that Americans needed prayer. (laughs) So the first National Day of Prayer uh, observance that we've been a part of, organized by the National Prayer Committee, took place at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C. And it featured uh, Vice President then George Bush and Dr. Lloyd Ogilvie. That was in 1983. It took until 1988 uh, for the National Prayer Committee and, and Vonette Bright working with uh, folks like uh, Senator Strom Thurmond and, and others, uh, Frank Wolf and others in the Capitol to establish or get a bill passed, which would go then to President Ronald Reagan uh, on May 5th, 1988, and he would establish it as the first Thursday in May. So it's a, it's a rich heritage. It's, it's kind of a, an interesting flow. And then in 1991, Vonette Bright passed it off to Shirley Dobson. And Shirley Dobson, for 25 years, headed up the National Day of Prayer with the assistance of many uh, honorary chairs, people of influence from the Christian community, preachers, pastors, leaders, Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, um, you know, we mentioned Dr. John or, uh, Lloyd Ogilvie and others who have represented the National Day of Prayer to the Christian community, encouraging us to get out and to pray for our nation on the National Day of Prayer. So in a, in a nutshell, that's the history of what's happened in the last uh, few decades. Dion Elmore here on The Intersection. Again, the National Day of Prayer website is nationaldayofprayer.org. Well, Mark Ward serves as a Logos Pro at Faith Life maker of Logos Bible Software. He spoke with me recently about aspects of Bible translations related to his book, Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. Here now from that conversation is Mark Ward. I read a study that Mark Knoll and the Pew Research Center did a number of years ago, 2014, that found that out of every 100 people who pulled down a Bible off the shelf in America, 55 of them pulled down a King James Version. And that surprised me, and it concerned me because I grew up with the King James, and I love the King James. But over years of study and use of it, and then learning Greek and Hebrew and checking other translations, I came to realize how many things I was missing, not because the King James translators made mistakes, or because, hopefully, not because I'm a dummy, but because (laughs) English has changed in the last 400 years. And I wanted to share my insights into the changes in the English language with readers. And Mark, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds to me like you're not questioning the reliability or the authenticity of the King James Version. Not at all. There's not a single negative word in my little book about the decisions of the King James translators. I'm not second-guessing them at all. 
I'm only saying that they were not prophets. They could not know how English would change in the coming centuries. And we should not be required, you know, normal churchgoers should not be required to know all of the ways English has changed in order to access God's words. We need God's word, not in someone else's English, but in ours. Well, let's take just a moment, Mark, if you would, to really, as we might say, extol the virtues of the King James Bible. As you mentioned, it's still popular. 55% of those that pull down a Bible from the shelf, as you mentioned earlier, pull down the KJV. So tell me what you see as the, the strongest points of that translation. Well, actually, I would say rather than the strongest points of the translation, which I can also speak to, Mm -hmm. um, I would say the strongest reasons for continuing to use it are the focus of my first chapter. And I talk about things like um, the value that comes when everybody uses the same translation over the course of generations. And this is the the translation whose phrases uh, show up in uh, literary allusions in novels, um, and they also just get learned by osmosis in the church because everybody's repeating the same ones. And that's definitely what happened to me as a kid. And we are losing that as the King James moves from basically 100% to 55%. I think, however, that and a more direct answer to your question is that the King James is a generally formal, which is a, another way kind of of saying literal translation. It's not always literal or formal. But I tend to think that that's a, uh, the place to start in Bible study and more formal translation. So it's a good thing that the King James established um, a, a li- more literal baseline and launched a tradition of English Bibles that we still enjoy today in, in basically what are updates and revisions of the King James. It has many strengths, and, but that's probably the greatest one. How do you see, especially in the 21st century, that there are maybe misuses or misunderstandings about the the role of this particular translation? I will answer in a way that's going to sound counterintuitive and maybe a little (laughs) bit shocking, but I'll explain. Okay. And I think it it is a misuse of the King James Bible to say to people, here is an English Bible. And why, you know, why would I say that when obviously it is English? And I would say largely it is intelligible. The answer is that like a Venn diagram, you know, you've seen those two circles that have some area of overlap. Uh, If you think of Elizabethan English, the English of the King James as one of those circles and modern English as one of the other circles, I'm sorry, the other circle, those two circles are pulling apart slowly and the area of overlap is shrinking year by year. So it really is no longer accurate to say that the King James has been translated into the English language, because you have to ask which version of the English language. Even today, we've got Kenyan English and Singaporean English and British and Australian and New Zealand English that aren't quite the same. Well, similarly, Elizabethan English is not the same as American English or any other existing English. So it's a misuse of the King James Bible to ask it to do what it originally did quite well, and that is speak to the regular people out there who are filling churches. Um, We we just can't expect people to understand this older English. And my book shows some subtle ways that I think people have been missing. 
what the King James translators were trying to say just because of changes in English. That was Mark Ward here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website byfaithweunderstand.com. Finally, here on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's the founder of Operation Care International, Susie Jennings, the author of the book, 31 Days of Mountaintop Miracles, One Woman's Legacy of Unconditional Obedience. She visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the 2018 National Religious Broadcasters Convention and discussed plans for a global birthday party for Jesus during the Christmas season of the year 2020. Here now from that conversation is Susie Jennings. Well, uh, we started in 2004, and we started with 10,000 people attending the event, and they are the poor of Dallas and also the homeless of Dallas. And we specifically also um, make sure that we honor the homeless veterans also. And so we had, like last December, when we started it in 2004, we have 10,000 people who attended. Last year, in 2017, we have 15,000 people who came, 12,000 were the poor and the homeless, and then the 3,200 were the volunteers coming from 300 churches. Oh my goodness. So you got the churches in the community together and you celebrated Jesus' birthday yes. by, you could say it like this, doing what Jesus does and what he did as far as exercising compassion and reaching out to the poor and the needy. Yes, and the heart of Operation Care is really prayer and evangelism, and the trademark is foot washing. So at night before, the homeless and the poor will be falling in line, and the next day when we open the door at 8.30, they will go inside, and they will be welcomed by volunteers with Marines also with a sword, so the homeless vets will go first, and then they go to the um, area of evangelism and prayer, one-on-one, and they're foot washing. We wash their feet and, and then put on socks and shoes, and then we go to the coats, sleeping bags, blankets, haircuts, makeover, food, entertainment, flu shots, also um, eyeglasses and dentist, and then we have free phone calls. Oh, that is awesome. So really ministering to the entire person, a holistic type of ministry. And let's go ahead and and move the conversation into a discussion about what you are projecting in the year 2020 churches and ministries all across America, essentially in their cities and also around the world, really replicating what you've been doing in Dallas for a number of years. Yes, it is a global birthday party for Jesus. Susie, what do you envision here? Well, God has given me a vision, and actually uh, this vision happened a few years ago, and every January 1 to 8, I would go to um, another country in a prayer mountain and I will fast and pray January 1 to 8 seven days and then I will ask God direct, uh, God to direct operation care so he gave this vision of it's called one day 2020 wherein in one day the whole world will celebrate Jesus birthday and that the whole theme of that day will be evangelism sharing Christ and then the trademark will be foot washing because you know, foot washing, we emulate servanthood, and that's the last thing that Jesus did before he went to the cross. So we wanted to have this birthday party where we will provide um, evangelism and prayer, and also uh, foot washing, and also food and um, clothing for the poor, and uh, coats and sleeping bags, all this other stuff. But in one day, 2020, there will be 240 countries that will be join, that will be um, the recipient of this event, and we would like to ask all over the world 
any evangelist, any church that has homeless and poor ministry to join forces and have a birthday party for Jesus on that one day. That's why it's called One Day 2020 and that there will be millions of heirs, H-E-I-R-S, to the throne wherein millions will come to know Christ because not only for the birthday party in that morning, in that day, but on the evening, we would like to ask all evangelists all over the world to hold a crusade wherein millions will come to know Christ in one day. Could you imagine if the whole world, all the evangelicals will join forces and mm. celebrate Jesus' birthday and share Christ all day long to the poor and the needy and the people, even volunteers come to know Christ and then the whole world will be evangelized in one day. 2020, December 19, 2020. Susie Jennings from NRB 2018 here on The Intersection. You can find out more at opcare.org. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center. You can also find out about subscribing to The Intersection Podcast. There are also two blogs accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content. The Intersection Podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.